Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. I'm really excited about today's conversation because I wanted to interview uh, this young woman again for quite some time. Her name is Melissa Odin, and those of you who, who keep track of what's going on inside the pro-life movement will have heard of her, and the rest of you certainly need to hear from her because her story is genuinely incredible. It's actually one of those stories that's that's hard to believe. And I heard this story uh, for the first time, actually, in front of a Planned Parenthood in Washington, D.C. I was uh, on my way back from uh, Kermit Gosnell's trial in Philadelphia with a colleague. We had gone to see the closing arguments of that trial. And as we were heading back from Philly, uh, we heard that there was a Stop the Killing rally being put on by live action in front of a Planned Parenthood because it was one of the abortion clinics that had been busted in a, in a particularly horrifying scandal where babies who were born alive and left to die were being actively killed by abortionists. And so Live Action, which is an organization run by Lila Rose, which works to expose abortion clinics and Planned Parenthood specifically, uh, were holding a rally with several speakers in front of this Planned Parenthood. And my colleague and I uh, diverted our road trip through Washington, D.C. so that we could be there for the rally as well. And so we joined this rally and a young woman got up behind the microphone and started telling her story. And it was it was honestly just uh, compelling and riveting to listen to because here we were at this rally that was coming at the tail end of a long expose about abortionists actively killing children who had survived abortions. And then here behind the microphone was a woman who had survived an abortion herself. Uh, here was a woman who could get up behind the microphone and say, those babies that you kill, those babies that you leave to die, I was one of them, you missed me, and now I'm back to tell my story. Her story, honestly, is one that will, will send shivers down your spine. Melissa Odin was born on August 29, 1977, and she now actually works uh, in the pro-life movement speaking of her experience as an abortion survivor and how her life has unfolded since she discovered that she had, in fact, survived an abortion. And I'm not going to give you too many details on that because she's going to share her story with us, but she's now appeared in political advertisements for the Susan B. Anthony list, and she's spoken at a number of different places, including the U.S. Congress. She has testified to what actually takes place during abortions and has testified against Planned Parenthood. She's been uh, featured on many different TV shows, including including uh, Fox News, Catholic TV, The 700 Club, and she's founded two nonprofit organizations, including the Abortion Survivors Network and For Olivia's Sake. Olivia is the name, actually, of her oldest daughter, who was born at the same hospital where, in 1977, Melissa survived the abortion. So keep in mind, as you're listening to Melissa Odin's story, that Melissa is one of those people that, by the standards of the abortion industry, simply should not exist. Because a doctor was hired to end her life, and yet here she is speaking with us, testifying to her experience, and explaining to all of us the miracles that have taken place in her life and what we should be doing to combat the industry that ends lives of little children just like her. I guess my first question would be, what is it like to be both an abortion survivor and a pro-life activist? 
interesting part for me living my life as a pro-life activist has been that the story of my life continued to unfold. Right. You know, I think about that a lot. It's a really awkward place to be in the public eye, um, especially with a story like mine. And, you know, really in the last six years, the most, the biggest secrets, the biggest truths about my life have unfolded. And so my story as I know it now is that 41 years ago, my birth mother as a 19-year-old college student actually had a saline infusion abortion forced upon her against her will. Um, we did not know up until six years ago that it wasn't her choice. And it was through contact with her family that we found out that it was her mother, my maternal grandmother, who forced it upon her. My maternal grandmother was a prominent nurse in their community, you know, had the knowledge and had the means to make that secret forced abortion take place. And so they bypassed hospital regulations, procedures. And I say we because it was her and the abortionist who was her colleague. And they forced it upon her, believing that nobody would ever find out that it wasn't my birth mother's choice. And so we were subjected to that saline infusion abortion. My procedure actually lasted five days. Typically, you know, if people know the saline infusion abortion, they would know it takes place usually over about 72 hours. But in my case, they just could not get my birth mother's labor successfully induced until the fifth day. And so on that fifth day, they induced her labor. And, of course, they believed that I would be delivered as a successful abortion. Um, that was the intent. That's the way it should have gone. Um, and then, lo and behold, I was actually born alive on that fifth day. In my circumstances, um, like many children, right, we know that, that many children like me are either left to die or are killed at the hands of the abortionist after they survive. And that certainly could have been my fate. Um, we actually know now that my grandmother was there when I was delivered alive, and she is actually the one who demanded that I be left in that room to die. When did you first hear the story about uh, the fact that you had been aborted, but you had survived? Do you remember the moment? Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, absolutely. Yeah, I was 14 years old. I can tell you where I was sitting. Uh, it was October, right? It was a cold fall night. And um, the only reason why the truth came out at that time is because my older sister was facing an unplanned pregnancy herself. My sister and I are both adopted, you know, were raised to know about what a gift adoption was in our lives. And uh, of course, about the value of every life. But, you know, like so many women in that position facing this unplanned pregnancy, she had a lot of fears and anxieties. And so, she was actually considering an abortion. And so when our parents found out that she was pregnant and considering every option, they actually told her the story of my survival. And that's ultimately how it came floating down to me. It was absolutely devastating the way it started to roll out um, because it, she actually said to me during an argument, it sounds terrible when I say it out loud, but you know, I always have to tell people the context was we were two teenage girls, right? Um, she said to me in an argument, she said, you know, at least my biological parents wanted me. Wow. And that was like, right? I mean, I was ready to spout off at her, right? Of like, why would you think you were more wanted than me? 
you know, we were, I thought we were on equal footing. And, um, but that night when I turned around to say something back to her, the look on her face just stopped me. And that's when she realized that she knew something that I didn't, you know, she got to me with that information before our parents could break that news to me. And so that's all she said to me and just said, you know, wait up for mom and dad tonight and ask them to tell you the truth and you will see. And so it was later that night that our mom got home from work. I sat her down, thought I was going to get in trouble for fighting with my sister. Right. Um, But I was asking her, right, to explain to me, why would she say something like that? And then that's when my mom had to tell me that my birth mother had an abortion and I survived it. Had you ever... And it is absolutely life-changing. Yeah. Had you thought about abortion much before this? Like, you had thought about adoption, of course, many times, but had you ever really thought about the issue of abortion before finding out that somebody had tried to abort you? In the respect that I knew what it was, right, and it had already been happening around me um, in our community. You know, I knew people at the time who had had abortions in my school, um, people who had had miscarriages. And so um, it wasn't... um, an abstract concept to me, but I think, I think what I learned in that moment of time really was just how, how close abortion hits home, right? I mean, I really think that's one of the most, really one of the biggest obstacles so many people in our world face is that they somehow think it's something that doesn't affect them, um, or that, that doesn't, you know, doesn't affect their lives. And so in that flash moment of time, uh, I realized how close it hits home for everybody. So backtracking just a little bit, how how did you get uh, from a hospital room where your uh, grandmother had wanted to leave you to die to in the home of, of your adoptive parents who loved you so much? Yeah, well, and that's, it's been interesting to hear that story continue to unfold itself. So my parents had been told that there were a couple of nurses who intervened for me. And I was actually contacted by a nurse like two years ago now. And she was in the NICU working that day when I was rushed in by another nurse. Um, she said, that she, she said, you know, I'll never forget it. She was like 20, 21 years old at the time, right? Really pretty young nurse. And she said, I'll never forget it. The door to the NICU came flying open. This tall blonde nurse rushed you in. And she shouted, I'll clean up the language a little bit, but she said, that darn Dr. Kelberg messed up. That was the abortionist. Right. And she went on and she said she just kept gasping for breath. And so I couldn't just leave her there to die. That nurse did what people think was unthinkable. She did not leave me in that room to die. You know, my medical records actually indicate through my APGAR score that I was left for probably five minutes at least. You know, the way they looked, they did my scoring. I was near death um, after about five minutes. And um, that must have been, you know, when the nurse was willing to, to rush me off to the NICU. And so she believed that if people found out that the abortion had failed and I had lived, that then maybe they could provide me medical care, which is you know, exactly what they did. So I weighed a little less than three pounds. I was two pounds, 14 ounces when I was delivered in that procedure. Uh, Suffered from, you know, respiratory liver problems, seizures, 
they thought I had a fatal heart defect initially uh, because of the amount of distress that I was under, but they started the medical care that sustained my life. So my parents first met me when I was still in a NICU. Uh, I was born at St. Luke's Hospital in Sioux City, Iowa, and then transferred to a larger hospital uh, where they would provide me more medical care. And so my parents met me when I was still in the NICU, and I went home to them uh, less than three months after surviving that abortion, which is pretty miraculous. Yeah. Well, and and so how did you, like, did your mother know that you had survived, and and who who signed the papers to to release you to to be adopted? I, I assume there's a lot of legalities surrounding a, a situation like that, even as, as bizarre as as it was. <laughs> yeah, bizarre, right? right? <laughs> um, you know, people would ask me over the years, do you think your birth mother knew that you survived? And I'd always say, well, yeah, of course, right? I was placed for adoption. Of course she had to know. But she didn't. That was probably, that was absolutely, for me, the biggest bombshell to learn about six years ago when her family reached out to me. She did not know for over 30 years that I had survived. She was told that day, you know, in the, the final step of the procedure, don't look at it. It's hideous. It's a monster. And of course, she didn't look thinking, uh, you know, I don't want to see the remains of this child who was just aborted. So she never knew if it was a little boy or a little girl. And the secret was kept from her. My grandmother told other members of the family that I had initially survived. Uh, from what we can understand, it was my grandmother that arranged my adoption without my birth mother's consent. I don't know if I will ever know the answers as to who helped her do that or if this is kind of a typical thing, right? I now have had contact from other women who have had children survive. They think their children survived abortions and were placed for adoption. I don't think my case is probably an isolated incident, to be perfectly honest. Um, but in my circumstances, it was my grandmother that was the driving force behind it. The signature on my adoption records is not my birth mother's. Someone signed it. So fast forwarding again to you discovering, uh, initially that you had survived an abortion procedure. When you heard that news, you said it was devastating, but was there any part of your subconscious where this made sense? Was there anything that clicked when you found out this news? Or was it uh, beyond a shock, just something that you never could have fathomed and made no sense to you whatsoever? It made no sense. You know, it's it's this simultaneous um, shock of how could this be? And then at the same time, you know what, this gratitude of like, you know, God spared my life, right? I could feel that in my soul, um, that God spared me and there was a plan for me. But um, no, I never had any kind of subconscious thought, right? Nothing that would lead me on to have ever considered that that, that kind of thing had happened in my life. Some survivors think they have, um, you know, subconscious memory. Not for me. This was never on my radar. I guess the only way to ask this question is is what happened next? You found this out. It was it was obviously devastating. I would say as any of us could understand, but I don't think we can understand it. We can just try to imagine what that would have been like. So what happened after you found out? I didn't want to be this person. To be perfectly honest, I did not want to be 
the girl who survived an abortion, you know, to be 14 years old and, you know, already, you know, trying to figure out who you are, right, and where you fit in this world. And then to have this news, it was like a very, very lonely existence for me. And so, yeah, I didn't want to be this person, tried to run away from who I was, the truth about my life, right, wanted to be like everybody else. And really was self-imploding and um, was just really, I was in a lot of emotional pain. Nobody knew. Uh, I was that quote-unquote perfect kid, right? I used to hate that when people would interview my parents and they'd say, you know, what was she like growing up? And my parents would go, oh, she was perfect. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. No. <laughs> um, that, I'm a type A, right? I think most people could probably figure that out about me. That's part of my personality makeup but part of it was also that I just wanted to look perfect in the hopes that nobody would see how much I was suffering um but the good you know the good news in the midst of that is that really I did not stay in that place of pain for very long Uh, my faith is just a huge part of my life and so by the time I went away to college I had started healing you know this is absolutely a lifelong process and I was just working with another survivor the other day and you know, she was throwing out questions, just saying like, you know, here I am all these years later, I can't trust people, I'm still a people pleaser, right? And I said, yeah, this is, this is an ongoing process for all of us. I'm what, like 30, almost 30 years into this. And I still have to make that deliberate effort every single day um, to, to not operate out of that place of hurt. When was the first time you decided to to use your story? Because that that must have been an incredibly difficult, as you say. You'd you constructed your your visible self, which I, I think everybody does to one extent or another. But not a lot mm-hmm. of people are hiding a story like yours. Um, <laughs> to share that is 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 just a, a decision that most people uh, I can't fathom. So when did you decide to essentially first start talking to other people and then eventually to go public with the story about how you were a survivor of abortion. I was going to say you're part of the 1%, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's a, a fraction of that. Um, <laughs> by, by very medical definition, you were not supposed to exist. You were there because somebody who was supposed to kill you screwed up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and that's why, I mean, I can laugh about it now, right? Because it's like, it's the greatest blessing in the world, but it's also really such a strange life circumstance. Like there is never a such a thing as a normal, quote unquote, normal day for me, right? Because um, inevitably the question is going to come up from someone um, and you learn, you learn to live with that, right? But a lot of people don't share it. And for me, um, that has been a huge part of my own personal healing is uh, not being afraid of who I am anymore. Uh, that was that was part of my struggle, right, is, is hiding the truth about who I was. And so um, in my instance, you know, God really had this plan for me to not keep my story a secret. And so when I was um, almost 30, it was like 2007, you know, I could really feel that it was time to share my story. And that's when I obtained my medical records. I found out who my birth parents were. Um, the pieces of my life were really falling into place very quickly. And so that's also when I found Feminist for Life. And that's a huge part of why I came forward publicly at that time. 
you know, even at the age of 14, I identified myself as a feminist, which is a four letter word. <laughs> you know, I'm like a lot of people are really not, <laughs> are not keen on that word, right? right? Like the word feminist is terrible to some people. For me, it's not, um, because I understand true feminism and, and what our feminist foremothers believed about abortion. Um, but finding feminists for life was a huge part of that because I really felt for a long time, right, like I couldn't be both feminist and pro-life because I had never encountered a group of feminists who said, you know what, what was done to you was wrong, right? Um, and so finding feminists for life was huge for me. And um, they were looking for speakers about the same time that all of these pieces in my life were falling together. And so that's why I came forward publicly when I did in 2007 is because, you know, that I knew it was time and they were looking for speakers. And so the very first time I spoke publicly was on Capitol Hill with Feminists for Life. And that's you, true empowerment for me. And you told your story at that point. I did. Knee shaking, right? Voice shaking. Thought I was going <laughs> to throw up. Um <laughs> Back then, I thought, you know, this is right. This is good. This is the right thing to do. But uh, I never thought, gee, I would like to quit my job for this um, and join pro-life ministry. That was like that was not on my radar either. Right. That could be the story of my life. This was not <laughs> this is not what I had planned. Um, right. In every good way. So how did people respond to your story? Because I, I think it's fair to say that most people have never heard uh, an abortion survivor tell their story, including many people in the pro-life movement. In fact, I think that hearing you speak outside an abortion clinic in Washington, D.C. in 2012 mm-hmm. on the way back from yeah. Kermit Gosnell's trial was the first time I ever heard uh, that yeah. story uh, get told. So how did people respond to that? Uh, it's kind of one of two ways, right? Either people are like, shocked and going, oh my goodness, wow, or people are shocked and going, yeah, no way, right? Um, there's probably no middle ground to that. And um, and I think that's been, I don't want to say, I mean, initially it was hard, right? It's not hard for me anymore. Um, I don't, I don't spend my time worrying about um, if people are going to quote unquote believe my story or not, right? Because I know the truth of my story, and I'm willing to share it in the hopes that it does plant that seed if people don't want to believe it initially. Um, but yeah, there there are getting to be more stories like mine shared, but really Gianna Justin's story was the first one I had ever heard. Like back in the 1990s, I saw her on TV, and that was that was life-changing for me to know I wasn't the only one. Um, but really up until, gosh, you know what? I came forward in 2007. Back then it was really only her and I. And then since that time, slowly a few stories are starting to trickle out more. But that's part of the work that I do through the Abortion Survivors Network is sharing more stories like mine. When you address uh, crowds, when you address people who support abortion or perhaps even uh, support abortion politically or work in the abortion industry, how do they respond to the fact that your existence is their failure? It's when you think about it uh, for a moment, I've always found 
the evidence of what abortion does to the victims to be one of the most powerful tools the pro-life movement has. It's what brought me mm-hmm. and so many others into the movement. But your story, to hear you tell it personally, that is, uh, is, is even more powerful in some ways because you were confronting them with the fact that abortion kills real people and you were exactly what those people might have looked like. Mm-hmm. And that's what I say to people, right? This is what 50 million children in our in the United States alone would have looked like in some way, shape, or form. And I think that's why my life was preserved to the point that it is, right? Because some people get really um, caught up in the fact that I look, quote-unquote, so normal, right? Like, that's a common argument that, that people who support abortion will say, well, you know, have you seen that woman? Like, this couldn't have happened to her, right? Well, okay, if you're saying that, you know what it should have done to me. Um, but most survivors, if you pass them on the street, you simply would not know that, that they survived the type of things that they did. But, you know, it really, people's response really depends on their level of healing, right? Like some of my, my greatest friends are former clinic workers, right? Abby Johnson and, and Jules Green and Catherine Adair, right? All of this those ladies are dear friends of mine and because they're in the place of healing that they are they see my life for what it is and they're repentant right because they know what happened to far more children than me um but there are certainly people who who are not in that place of healing who don't want to see the truth you know i've had um lobbyists from Planned Parenthood when I was there testifying before legislation, you know, and I went up later to shake their hand. They knew who I was. They had listened to me testify. I put out a hand, right, to respectfully shake their hand, and they actually turned on their heel and and walked away. Wow. They couldn't bring themselves to shake my hand. Um, another time I was testifying somewhere else, and uh, a legislator who we knew openly supported abortion um, actually got up and left the room as I was taking the podium to speak. So that's not, um, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty typical, right? That's next-level um, denial. Yeah, people certainly don't want to encounter the truth, and so they leave before they face it. Picking up the, the chronology again, uh, when you, you first went public, had you had any contact with your your birth family at that point did did you reach out to them or did they reach out to you how did how did that happen because i know uh, like you mentioned earlier your story is 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 consistently unfolding and there are multiple stories inside the story how did yeah. how did that start yeah well i found them in 2007 and that was part of what i wanted to do first before i ever came forward publicly was reach out to them right I didn't want them to be further traumatized by me coming forward with my story. Um, And so, yeah, I wanted to to have some contact with them first. And so I did. Um, I reached out to my birth father back in 2007, sent him a letter, Um, actually never heard back from him. And I couldn't find my birth mother back then, but I found her parents. And of course, back then, I didn't know that our family played this huge role in the abortion taking place. But did reach out to them, and um, my maternal grandfather actually did reply to my letter, so I did have some correspondence with him right before I came forward publicly. Um, my grandfather actually admitted 
that my live birth was not the intention, which, you know, was pretty courageous of him, I think. He didn't have to bring it up, and he did. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he told me some things that I, are pretty common when it comes to abortion, right? And that's part of what I share with people. You know, my birth mother, I knew back then that she had never told anyone about the abortion. That's what her family shared. And I also knew that that really my grandparents had no communication or relationship with my birth mother. And it didn't really make sense to me. But the more I work in the field and the more, of course, I've gotten to know my birth mother's story, it makes a lot of sense that their relationship has been severed because it was that forced abortion, right? And I see that time and time again. I hear the stories from people who will say, yeah, you know what? We don't talk about it or... You know, I don't have a relationship with my family who was responsible for my forced abortion. So so I actually didn't hear from my birth mother's family for, uh, you know what, over six years, from 2007 to 2013. And so I had come forward at that time, um, you know, and was always just wondering if my birth mother was hearing me speak, right, or or was listening to any interviews that I gave, and I was hoping that she was hearing me say that she's forgiven, right, that I'm not angry, that I'm not bitter. Um, but it wasn't until 2013 that one of her cousins from Canada um, contacted me. And, um, you know, what I know now is that really the reason why they contacted me when they did is because we moved to Kansas City, Missouri, and this is where my birth mother lives. Wow. We didn't know that. So when I found my birth father, I was living in the very same city he lived in. And then six years later, we moved to the city where my birth mother lived. Talk about a story that only God can write, right? Yeah. So how did you make contact with her for the first time? Yeah, my cousin back in 2013, you know, had started to open those lines of communication saying, you know, here you guys are in the same metro area. One of my sisters lives here also. And we started emailing. And, you know, my birth mother was so traumatized uh, by the abortion, by not knowing all those years that I had survived, right? Even though she lived with such incredible regret, um, she was also scared of me you know, to be perfectly honest, because um, she didn't, she had never encountered anyone who had loved her really unconditionally before in her life, besides her other children, right? And so um, she wondered if I could love her the way I said that I did. She wondered if I could have really forgiven all of them. And of course, as they started to tell me more, right, about what had happened, they're thinking, well, now that we've told you this part, can you really still forgive us? Yeah, for sure. And so, so there were these like emotional obstacles we had to work through. And so it really started by email, right? And I sent her my medical records, right? Because she had tried over the years to obtain any kind of record and, and nobody would give her anything. And so here I was the one, you know, it happened to me and I, I'm the one who's able to provide records to her. And so provided her medical records, sent her photos of me growing up, right? Started to, to 
to really build a relationship. And so even though we lived in the same city, we did not meet face-to-face for the first time for really over about three years before we met face-to-face. And I think it, I think probably the biggest thing was, like, even though we knew we, we loved each other, there was still this fear, I think, of on each of our ends that maybe we would be rejected. And so nobody would bring up, like, hey, are you ready to meet? Right? It was just like, sit and wait. And who's going to bring it up? And so I was the one who brought it up. Actually, I um, had been emailing with one of my sisters and said, you know, I don't mean to, like, put you guys on the spot, but I am, like, always ready to to meet you all if you're ready to meet me. And um, I'll never forget it. My sister had emailed me back, and it was, like, all in caps, right? She was like, yes, we've been waiting. We're ready. And so uh, we met face-to-face around Mother's Day uh, a couple of years ago now. And it's one of those things that's actually hard for me to talk about, right? As much as I share my story and and my life with people, that meeting my birth mother face-to-face was like one of those moments that's just so sacred that you can't even really put it into words, right? But it was... Um, I don't even know how to describe it. It was like everything that I had been hoping for, but yet it was nothing like I expected it to be, if that makes any sense. Right. And how many siblings did you have? I have two half-sisters on my birth mother's side of the family. Okay. And and you and see- I have a relationship with both of them. And you see them all fairly regularly now? Yeah, as regularly as we can. I have one sister in Maine, and my other sister lives here in town. And so, you know, my my kids are being raised with their cousins. They wow. know my birth mother is their grandma Ruth. Um, this is normal to them, right? So what about the other members of your family? You said your birth mother was estranged uh, from your grandmother and your grandfather. Do you have a relationship with your your birth father and and your maternal grandparents? My maternal grandparents, so my grandmother is deceased. Um, My my maternal grandfather is still alive. Um, We corresponded a bit, you know, back in 2007, and I have not heard from him since then. Um, They don't have a lot of communication with my birth mother um, or my siblings. And so, um, you know, it's just one of those things I've learned to live in peace with. Um, and of course I always pray for, um, you know, pray for good for them no matter what. And, um, in terms of my birth father side of the family, my grandfather and my great aunt, um, came into my life about, 11 years ago, it was in 2008 when my birth father passed away, um, they actually found the letter that I had sent to him. And so that's how they learned the secret. They didn't know either that the, that my birth parents had ever even had that pregnancy with me. They were, my birth parents were engaged at the time. Um, they had planned to marry and, um, of course, you know, the abortion was forced upon my birth mother and that relationship ended and really my birth father's family never knew what had happened. And so it was all a great shock to them. But my grandfather and my great aunt are still a part of um, our lives. 
Um, most of my birth father's family has not had any contact with me. You know, this is um, a really difficult situation, um, especially with him passing away, because we'll never know what he knew. And I think that's difficult for them. It's hearing your story. It's like you said, it's not it's not a script anybody could write. It's it's an, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an extraordinary story in in so many different ways. And on so many different levels. And I'm sure you get a lot of shocked silence when you tell yeah. your story because it's just yeah. even the different puzzle pieces. Uh, it's sort of hard to wrap your mind around. But mm-hmm. one of the things I really wanted to bring up with you uh, is is you talk to people with extraordinary stories that are insane and that, you know, <laughs> that, that are impossible to believe all the time. And so... Yeah. I know a handful of stories of people who have survived abortion, right? There is you, there's Gianna Jessen, as you've mentioned, there's Claire Colwell. Uh, There was a little girl in Vancouver who actually survived 35 minutes in the cold before a nurse took pity on her. Uh, she actually lives in my hometown of Chilliwack, British Columbia now. She's, she's, she was yeah. adopted. Um, so there's a handful of stories like this, but you talk to so many people um, who haven't gone public. Could you share a few like anonymous stories with us? Because you talk to abortion survivors all the time, and I, and I do think that abortion survivors are one of the most powerful arguments against abortion. Agreed. You know, you probably saw that piece that came out of Ireland recently, right, as they were debating pro-life legislation and um, uh, a female, right, a deputy Kate O'Connell um, came forward, right, as some of the parliamentarians were referencing yes, that's right. abortion survivor stories. And, and certainly they were talking about me because I met with some of them a couple of years ago. But, um, right, she was saying, oh, those stories are fairy tales. Those stories come from dubious sources. And so I did a video and a, a picture collage you know, of some other survivors saying, you know what, we are not fairy tales, right? Um, I, I think it's easy for them to, to, to try to dismiss our stories, and we know that that's part of the, the pro-abortion tactic, right, is to try to say, oh, you know, they're alleged. Well, you know, I have my medical records. I have contact with my, my biological family who has admitted everything. I've had contact with a medical professional who cared for me. Like, what more would it take, right, for them to acknowledge that this is indeed true? Um, but, yeah, I have this arsenal of stories at, at my disposal. Um, I'm trying to think. I want to give you some of the highlights. I guess, you know, I could tell you that I've had contact with the families of abortion survivors as young as infants at this point, so they've survived chemical abortions and not reversals, right? I mean, we know, right, we've had contact with children who survive yes, abortions yes. or reversals, but I've had contact with families um, who have children who survived both pills when it comes to a chemical abortion. Um, so we've had contact with children, you know, the families of children in infancy up until... I've had lots of contact with survivors who who survived illegal abortions here in the United States before Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. Um, and you know, for those survivors, the shame is even greater, as you can probably imagine, right? It's one thing to survive a a legal abortion, and it's another thing to know that that people in your life went to an even greater extent to secure an illegal abortion 
um, to try to end your life. Yeah. And so there is a huge amount of shame that those survivors face. Um, so that's kind of the age range. Um, there are survivors that, that I've had contact with who survived multiple abortion attempts. Um, that's, that happens more frequently than I think people could probably um, imagine. So, um, and particularly saline. I mean, there's an awful lot of us as saline survivors. Um, but yeah, multiple rounds of abortion procedures to try to to end that life. Um, of the survivors that we've had contact with, I'm up to 264 other survivors. Um, most are actually raised by their biological parents. What impact does it have on the biological parents to, to realize who they tried to abort, and I assume to love those that they've tried to abort? Yeah, well, and it's an interesting experience, right? Um, in, in a handful of cases, um, some abortion survivors are raised by biological biological parents who absolutely love them and regret that decision to try to end their life, right? And we see that time and time again, even when someone is considered an abortion, once the child is alive, they're going, oh my gosh, how could I have ever considered trying to end this life, right? And so the same is to be said after an abortion has failed. You know, there are families who are so repentant and, and embrace that life. But to be perfectly honest, there are also survivors who face incredible suffering at the hands of their biological families after they've survived. Um, they're seen as a burden. Um, you know, I have a number of abortion survivors that I'm working with right now who have faced extreme physical and emotional abuse at the hands of their biological families um, who raised them after the abortion failed. Um, and, you know, I don't know that we're ever going to have answers in those families as to why they chose to parent them and not place them for adoption. Um, but I can tell you the stories that I've encountered are heartbreaking. Um, the amount of abuse that those children have suffered. Um, but, you know, I, I know that sometimes people can hear those stories and go, oh, well, that's why they should have been aborted, right? No, 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 no. I mean, we know the answer to that, right? Abortion is never the solution. Uh, but I will tell you that some of that abuse is, I mean, it's, it's the worst that I've ever heard of. And I'm a master's prepared social worker. Um, but there are survivors who have faced so much more trauma than even I have. What impact have you seen your story have? Again, by the standards of, of our, our legal abortion regime, you shouldn't exist. And what what impact have you seen your existence and your willingness to tell your story have on those who, who support abortion and what, essentially support the right uh, to abort babies just like you and just like the over 200 other people that, that you talk to on a regular basis? Yeah, it's it's an interesting position to be in, right? Because I look at the grand scale. And so when I see parliamentarians in Ireland bring up my story, for me, that's, that's showing an impact that I made with them, right? That even if I can't be everywhere, my story can be, right? In the hopes that it, it educates people and touches their hearts. Um, so when people are able to use my life and my story to 
to hopefully influence legislation, um, that's, that's showing impact to me. But truly for me, when I think about everything that has happened and how I've been able to use my life, for me, um, the impact that I've made with other survivors is the most important to me because, you know, not a day goes by that I don't hear from someone who says simply, you know what, thank you for sharing your story. I'm a survivor too. Um, and just knowing that they're not alone, um, whether a survivor will ever share their story or not, simply knowing they're not alone is huge. And so um, my work with survivors really is the most meaningful piece for me. You know, people know me in the public eye, right, as this activist, as a and all as a speaker and as a writer, but for me, the most important work happens behind the scenes. Final question. Uh, a lot of people listening will either be uh, members of the pro-life movement or people perhaps considering joining the pro-life movement. Um, what do you have to say to all of them, having experienced what you've experienced and also being the activist that you are? It, you know, I guess it's a twofold message, and I don't mean for this to sound trite, right? But I, I do want to thank everyone for whatever part they've played in, in the pro-life movement, because I truly believe I'm alive today because people were willing to do whatever it was that they were being called to do, right? Like, most of us may not ever know the impact that we make on someone's life. In my circumstances, there are many people who have been able to see how their actions and their prayers had a huge impact on my life. And so I just, first of all, want to thank people for what they've done or what they're going to do in their lives to make a difference. But um, also, I just want to encourage people to to remember our stories, to share our stories, um, to not only influence legislation and, and impact organizational work, but to bring about healing in other people's lives. You know, for me, that's a huge part of, I think, what needs to happen to have a culture of life is that we need to bring about healing in the lives of all the hundreds of millions of people whose lives have been touched by abortion. You know, until we heal, we can't really embrace the full truth and the knowledge of what abortion really is. And so, you know, I just want to encourage people to share our stories um, and to do it with grace and with love. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story to us. It's my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a conversation with Melissa Odin, who is an abortion survivor who now operates two pro-life nonprofit organizations. We hope you found this conversation interesting, and we hope you'll head to LifeSite News to check out more columns, more articles, and more interviews. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Thanks so much for listening.